Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Today's program is the unknown knowns of cultural diplomacy, or the foundations of weaponized art. With one exception, our music today comes from Dizzy Gillespie. We'll highlight Gillespie's band on tour for the State Department in 1956 and 1957. The band performed in South America, the Middle East, and Greece, and Gillespie became known as the Ambassador of Jazz. We're featuring three songs arranged by trombonist and band member Melba Liston. This is Annie's Dance off of the album Dizzy in Greece. On July 27, 1954, President Dwight D. Eisenhower sent a letter to the House Committee on Appropriations, showing the administration's belief in the importance of cultural diplomacy. I consider it essential, wrote the President, that we take immediate and vigorous action to demonstrate the superiority of the products and cultural values of our system of free enterprise. The administration sought funds to, quote, stimulate presentation abroad by private firms and groups of the best American industrial cultural achievements in order to demonstrate the dedication of the United States to peace and human well-being and to offset worldwide communist propaganda charges that the United States has no culture and that its industrial production is oriented to war, unquote. For today's episode, producer Bella Bravo spoke with poet Juliana Spar about her book Du Bois's Telegram, Literary Resistance and State Containment. This close study of how state interests have shaped contemporary U.S. literature was published by Harvard University Press in 2018. Juliana Spar is professor of English at Mills College and the author of eight volumes of poetry, including That Winter the Wolf Came, Well Then, There Now, and Response winner of the National Poetry Series Award. Spar lives in the Bay Area, and following the Occupy movement, the police shootings of Oscar Grant, Eric Garner, and Mike Brown, and the 2009 California College tuition hike protests, she co-founded the communist poetry imprint, Commune Editions. In Du Bois's Telegram, Spar investigates the relationship between politics and art. Her research focuses on the institutional forces at work during three moments in U.S. literature, that sought to defy political orthodoxies through challenging linguistic conventions. First, the avant-garde modernism of the early 20th century. Second, the resistance movement writing of the 60s and 70s. And finally, in the 21st century, the abundance of English language works integrating languages other than English. Though her research reveals how easily aesthetic resistance is captured, Spar does not decide to wholly reject the revolutionary potential of literature. In the end, Du Bois's telegram leads her to ask three questions. One, can literature escape the nation? Two, has art effectively supported social movements in the past? And three, what is the revolutionary capacity of literature? And now, the unknown knowns of cultural diplomacy with Juliana Spar on Interchange on WFHB.
I wanted to start um, by framing our conversation um, with the questions that you have in your conclusion, the ones that you kind of come to, it seems like, through the process of writing the book. Some of the questions that you pose are, is resistant and or revolution-aligned literature possible? And could we create one together? And would we even want to? I think those are questions that since I've read this book, I've been thinking about a lot. And I want to come back to uh, as we give uh, everyone else kind of some more context for how you how you came to those. My first question to you is, uh, what's the significance of Du Bois's telegram? There's a moment in um, the 1950s or mid-century where um, this group of writers that have gathered around this journal called Presence Afrikaan um, holds a big conference. And the conference is meant to be a kind of literary equivalent of the Van Dung conference, which brought all the kind of like non-aligned um, emerging nations um, out of the, the decolonization movements that were happening and that were going to happen shortly together to try to just try to discuss how to, how to, how to both work together and how to become independent and not, um, not basically the shadow states of the United States or the Soviet Union at the time. President Afrikan had a conference where they brought all the literary people together in, in France. Um, they did two of them. And they were inviting all, um, all the major black writers. I think it's even called like the Conference of Black Writing, um, of Black Writers. And so, um, you know, Richard Wright was on the planning committee and Césaire was there and Fanon was there, all the major mid-century um, writers of that time. Du Bois had been invited but he couldn't go because um, the United States government had taken away his passport, um, which they had taken away because he was doing international work on nuclear disarmament. The, the, the argument that he was, act, he, he was acting as a foreign agent and had it registered, um, which was, of course, slightly absurd because he was actually just working um, internationally, which is what you want to do politically. It wasn't doing governmental stuff, in other words. And um, but so he couldn't go. And he sent a telegram um, to the conference that was read at the conference um, saying that um, the writers that were showing up from the United States were ones that had been sent there um, by the United States as representatives of the United States and that were not contestatory to the United States and that was the reason why they were allowed to come. I am not present at your meeting today because the United States government will not grant me a passport for travel abroad. Any Negro American who travels abroad today must either not discuss race conditions in the United States or say the sort of thing which our State Department wishes the world to believe. The government especially objects to me because I am a socialist and because I believe in peace with communist states like the Soviet Union and their right to exist in security. Especially do I believe in socialism for Africa. The basic social history of the peoples of Africa is socialistic. It will be a fatal mistake if New Africa becomes the tool and cat's paw of the colonial powers and allows the vast power of the United States to mislead it into investment and exploitation of labor. I trust the black riders of the world will understand this and will set themselves to lead Africa toward the light and not backward toward a new colonialism where hand-in-hand hand with Britain, France, and the United States, black capital enslaves black labor again. W.E.B. Du Bois, New York, 30 August 1956. 
Um, it's unclear at the time if he actually knew how true that was or the extent of how true that was. If he knew that someone, that Richard Wright, who was on the committee, um, you know, had basically worked with the United States State Department to stack the writers from the United States that were invited, um, that were, you know, more concessionary writers, finally. Um, but the, the telegram caused this kind of like big debate at the um, at the conference, and there's a there's a fight at the conference that happens between Cesare and Richard Wright around some of these issues. But I liked it because it was it felt to me like this kind of like um, war. He was noticing mid century um, something that feels that that's kind of continued on and kind of remained unnoticed. And so I was kind of like to think of him as like a telegram from the past, sent <laughs> to still warn us about these moments. Did you come? to find Du Bois's uh, telegram or this uh, incident um, first? And did that spark uh, the rest of your research? Or were you already doing um, this history of the struggle between cultural diplomacy and cultural autonomy um, before and found this incident in the midst of your research? Yeah, I found it in the midst of it. I kind of worked backwards. Like I started like a number of years ago, I was writing stuff about the Poetry Foundation, which is this organization in Illinois that famously got like this $200 million from Eli Lilly and kind of became overnight like a major player in the world of poetry. And I was trying to understand what they were funding because suddenly like there was, there had never been this sudden 200 million kind of popping up in poetry <laughs> recently. And they were doing a lot of like governmental funding programs. And then I started like, I started through that. I started like looking at the NEA that they were funding and just kind of, you know, just kept working backwards, kind of like looking at things like there's a, a state department program called the international writers program um, at the university of Iowa. And I was trying to understand like why that existed or what it was doing. Um, and that's kind of how I ended up there. This is Interchange on WFHB. Bella Bravo is in conversation with poet Juliana Spar, author of Du Bois's Telegram, Literary Resistance and State Containment, where Spar confronts the unknown knowns of cultural diplomacy in which the arts become nation-adjacent when they're funded by private foundations in partnership with state agencies. Your research is really thorough, and I think you do a good job of distinguishing when you're presenting facts um, and when you're presenting argument. And so in terms of this uh, two million popping out of nowhere for Mila Lilly, I find it particularly interesting since uh, I live in Bloomington, Indiana, and the Lilly Library uh, is funded by Eli Lilly and as are a number of the institutions here. Um, and so could you... Tell us a little bit about what um, you found through following the money. It would also be helpful if maybe you discuss some of the um, concepts of the nation and nationalism um, that you are applying as you are doing your research. I mean, what's interesting about found private foundations is that they are more or less the nation in the United States. Um they get created, I mean, they kind of like the, they, they tend to get founded in these moments of high taxation. Um, and so like, that's why there's a lot of them that kind of come early, in the early 20th century. And um, they're basically the way that rich people keep a hold of the money that they would otherwise have to pay in taxes, right? Because you get a tax, a very generous tax break is like one of the peculiarities of the United States funding. But um, even though they're kind of 
want to keep their money from the government, they have a long history of working very, very closely with the government. Um, that gets established again, early 20th century. They often like, you know, like they share staff and that continues into today um, in some form. So they're, they're not the nation, but they're the uh, nation adjacent, maybe. And in the early 20th century, it involves literature, like the state will repress writers, right? They'll like try to, you know, uh, make the anarchist writers, have, you know, force them back into Russia, you know, whatever they can do. And then the foundations will often be funding literature to kind of like more liberal literatures quite often, to be honest with you, although not entirely. Um, but they have this like kind of long history of kind of like putting a lot of funding into literature around moments in which there's an uprisings kind of interestingly. But um, Eli Lilly money is not that necessarily. The, but the money comes from Ruth Lilly, who I think is like the niece or, you know, like one of the major heirs to this like Eli Lilly large amount of money that they have. And for years, she had been kind of like funding very modest amounts of art. You know, like there's a couple of prizes that are named after her. And um, I mean, the rumor is, although no one's ever uh, actually ever been able to confirm this rumor. And so like, I can't tell, I mean, how much of it, how, how QAnon you want to go on it or not. Um, but the rumor is, is that around the time that Prozac was found to cause larger amounts of suicide, mm-hmm. that um, that they they got, they pressured Ruth Lilly, who was on her, who was going to die soon. Um and who supposedly is claimed to have wanted to leave all her money to like her pets um, in that way that sometimes people do or to like pet based projects. Um, They pressured that she was pressured to leave it to this poetry magazine, which was kind of like longstanding um, kind of, um, I don't know, you know, not the most um, up to date magazine. It had been around for a really long time, a kind of like very old establishment magazine. So uh, because that could give the largest amount of impact and so as to redirect attention from this Prozac study that was going to come out. Um, I don't know how literally I want to take that in some way, but that's just kind of, that's, that's like one of the stories that kind of circulates about it. But it is, it's not unusual for foundations or rich people to use their money that way, to kind of like use cultural funding to kind of cover over various um, difficult moments in their lives. And so when you say that foundations, um, and I think maybe universities function in a similar way that they're um, nation adjacent. Um, what does, what are some of the examples um, that uh, you found in your research of the nation um, using cultural diplomacy in this, in a similar like rep- repressive way? U S cultural diplomacy really takes off um, after world war two. Um, it's not its origin point, but that's the most, moment where it becomes um, very intensified and it develops uh, symbiotically in relationship to this to the kind of soviet moment at the same time because the soviets in part because um, when that when the russian revolution happened you know there's that whole idea that they need these other nations to also go communist in order to kind of survive and they don't and it creates this really hard time there um but um they also are very, as part of that, for that reason, they're very attentive to kind of cultural diplomacy programs, and they focus a lot on the United States. So very early on, they're funding things like the John Reed Clubs, and, um, you know, they're sending writers over, and um, they're inviting, you know, like Claude McKay goes over and, you know, does, does reading, and, and even, you know, Trotsky asks him to write some work for him. Um, and the Harlem Renaissance, they send over, I think, like 13, they, they invite like 13 Harlem Renaissance writers to go over to supposedly make a film that never happens. And the United States kind of like mimics a lot of these Soviet, early Soviet programs. Um, and they kind of go back and forth um, the entire kind of time. Similarly to the to, to those Soviet programs, the United States um, 
you know, begins to fund um, um, a huge number of magazines, actually, um, and various other nations that um, are kind of like in the name of anti-communism, in the name of a kind of like um, a liberal, um, a liberal anti-communism, maybe. Um, most of that funding is covert. The CIA sets up a series of um, they work closely with this existing foundation infrastructure that already exists, but they also set up like front foundations, one of which is called the Congress for Cultural Freedom. That's like huge. Um, that's in Europe. That's, you know, it's in Africa. Um, it's kind of like they set up many things until they're exposed in like the late 1960s, um, first by this kind of journal called Ramparts um, that, again, has these rumors of kind of um, – Communist Party funding that I, I have never, I don't know if they're true or not, and um, which eventually gets picked up by the New York Times. It's time for a break. This is Stella by Starlight, arranged by trombonist Melba Liston. More with Juliana Spar on the revolutionary capacity of literature when Interchange returns. Stay with us. Welcome back to Interchange on WFHB. Episode producer Bella Bravo is in conversation with poet Juliana Spar, author of Du Bois's Telegram, Literary Resistance and State Containment. In this segment, Spar unpacks why government seems to invest a lot in the power of literature to influence populations against those governments. As you're doing this investigation, you say very clearly in your introduction, like that you limit the scope to uh, literature in the turn of the century. Um, and so, I am wondering if you saw a distinct uh, difference from the this period that's mid-century and the period of time um, that's closer to uh, contemporary or, or present day in how, um, either these foundations or nations are using cultural diplomacy. It continues to exist. Um, 
it's a different time because I think the threat of communism is not the same as it was in the mid-century. In some way, like the U.S. was very successful at like suppressing um, kind of communist movements and decolonizing Africa. Mm-hmm. And yet they still continue to kind of like send writers abroad. Um, just not, it doesn't seem to be to the same extent as they once did. And I mean, I think that's also true um, internally, like um, the last big moment for like, kind of like monitoring writers was I think in like the late sixties, early seventies, um, in which they, they monitored a lot of kind of like, you know, movement literature writers, and they don't seem to be monitoring writers to the same extent as they, as they used to. Um, I don't think they need to, but I feel like there's so many changes to kind of like government, um, supervision in some form that, um, we're not entirely sure how to tell that story yet. Um, in part because of changes in technology. So is the motivation for, um, nations to do this cultural diplomacy or to do this monitoring or, um, take on these repressive measures um, because of the relationship that they assume between literature or other arts and resistance or, or revolutionary movements? Governments are really optimistic about the power of literature. (laughs) I mean, they are really convinced that if we read a poem supporting riots, that we will go out and riot. Um, which again, I'm not sure is true. You uh, you point to a couple of of examples in your book. Um, you mentioned like the Im- the importance of literature leading to the Bolshevik Revolution, um, and then you also talk about uh, Kristen Ross's uh, history on the legacy of the Paris Commune and how there were the. I don't think they were like salons, but they were debate clubs uh, happening all over Paris. And the artists were obviously a huge part of the commune and developing a culture within the commune. And then you also talk about uh, the impact of literature on like the Watts riots. It, I guess it's it's interesting to hear you say that you're not you're not convinced, um, though I kind of. I, I understand it. So I was wondering if you could uh, unpack unpack that a little bit more, because that's really at the heart of, or not at the heart, but that's at the heart of, it's a big part of your argument. It almost seems like this limitation that you see in the capacity for literature to uh, participate in uh, revolution. I mean, I'm trying to do, I try to do two, I try to have a two part argument around that, which is, I want to hold on to the possibility that literature can play a major role in revolution. Um, what that role is, I'm often like, I'm, I'm more convinced that like, I kind of think of it as, um, again, as adjacent, not necessarily, because if you don't think of it as just something that shows up in literature or that literature has a role in, then you end up with this kind of idea that it's political to write a poem or that it's a meaningly form of political activism to write a poem, which I don't really think. But but people do write out of these revolutionary moments. They write about these revolutionary moments, and it changes literature in really interesting ways. And I kind of want to hold on to that. But at the same time, um, because the state this, these moments make the state so nervous, um, really, you know, almost immediately nervous. Um, they immediately go in and try to do things that are um, to um, uh, regulate um, or uh, redirect um, this kind of revolutionary literature. 
like, I mean, one of the most kind of interesting, again, mid-century moments is like this development of a kind of like liberal race novel that gets developed with this idea that um, literature can help um, help white people better understand racism um, if they just if we if they just read this kind of no, this kind of liberal novel about um, you know about about racial oppression, often normally, which they, they understand as kind of black experience in some way. Um, and um, so they often like foundations are often have, you know, been asking writers to kind of write this sort of novel with the idea that it will change thing people's minds. It potentially changes people's minds, but I mean, obviously doesn't change the structural conditions that created racism, you know, that the result of racism. Mm. Um, and um, I think that historically, we can only say that it does not work for that reason, because it hasn't really, we haven't seen any moment where people have um, read enough of, a, of any sort of novel to go out and actually address these structural conditions in some way. I think the example that you gave with the Paris Commune, I found very convincing um, because you point out that, sure, there were all of these debates happening all over Paris beforehand. Um, but one of the reasons why the artists were such a big part of the communard legacy is because it was so hard to find a job and... They were very involved because they just didn't have any money. They couldn't participate in the economy. They were totally, they were forced outside of it. And so, uh, when the revolution or when the insurrection in Paris was happening, they were, they were full participants because they were the material conditions. They were trying to change them. Yeah. Revolutions always start or often start with a food riot, right? A bread riot or maybe a water riot today. We've talked a lot about the the, na uh, the nation and repressive measures, um, but there's this whole section in the middle of your book about movement literature, and we started to touch on that a little bit. Um, and so I was wondering if you could uh, talk about um, what you're doing with movement literature in the book and trying to address why maybe some of these um, like literature and art ties um, – fail to be revolutionary or like fail to grow or fail to maintain solidarity over periods of time. I mean, the government was again, like very involved in this from the very beginning. And one of the kind of interesting things that happens around, um, around in response to and around movement literatures is they realize that um, the best way to kind of like, they can no longer, foundations can no longer fund from like the top in the same way. And so they turn to this model of kind of like community funding that they're going to, that they're going to do. And it, and it becomes like this, this idea that if they do this community funding, that no one will be suspicious of it anymore. But I mean, I feel like the most telling story here is the one around Baraka, who, um, you know, has that moment where um, Malcolm X is killed and he's like, I, he leaves the, the New American Poetry or the Lower East Side and moves up to Harlem. And he starts this kind of black arts repertory theater school um, that is very attentive to kind of like the revolutionary cultural, revolutionary potential of culture. Um, it's the years in which Baraka becomes a kind of very intense cultural nationalist. And he starts the school with this money that, that um, although he doesn't know it at the time, has been... Um, kind of appropriated to um, Harlem um, because they're worried, they're worried, the government's worried about riots. Um, they, Harlem had rioted the summer before. Um, Malcolm X being killed, I think he's killed in April, is like, you know, like, it, it feels like a tinderbox. And so they put a lot of money in, and it's, it's like on, on this anti-poverty program. Baraka starts the school with that money. I think the school only lasts for like six months. And after the summer's over and there's no riots, it actually worked. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our show is the unknown knowns of cultural diplomacy, or 
The Foundations of Weaponized Art, with Juliana Spar. To illustrate Spar's discussion of the poet Amiri Baraka, here is Baraka reading his 1963 poem, Kenyatta Listening to Mozart, mixed with Ornette Coleman's Embraceable You, as they both offer, perhaps, ironic proposition. Kenyatta Listening to Mozart on the back trails, in sunglasses. And warm air blows cocaine from city to river and through the brains of American poets in San Francisco. Separate and lose. Bats brush through undergrowths of fiction. Mathematics bird. Undressed and in sympathy with absolute stillness and the neutrality of water. We do not write poems in the rainy season. Light to light, the weighted circumstance prowls like animals in the bush. A zoo of consciousness, cries and prowlings anywhere, stillness, motion, beings that fly, beings that swim. formation.
Caucus program wasn't the only one that kind of got the money. Um, they pull the money and the school collapses. That's the beginning. I mean, Barack is still young at that point, but that's the beginning of Barack um, spending the rest of his life complaining about this government funding in some way. And he's been actually one of the most kind of vocal critics, um, so much so that when I first started reading Barack, I was kind of like, what's up with this? Why is he so nuts about this topic? And now I'm like, I'm fully on his side. <laughs> but he's like completely right that, um, you know, it did have a really kind of detrimental impact in, in many ways. Wow. You, you try and like make clear that it's not your intention to just, uh, complain. Um, but when you hear stories like, uh, Baraka's, do you see, uh, a way, a way forward? You mention, um, Harney and Moten and the concept of the undercommons. Uh, and so maybe this would be a helpful time to like talk about that. But really, uh, I'm <laughs> wondering what do, what do people do? They just like turn down the money or. <laughs> Yeah, I, yeah. I and does that really do anything if you just turn shit. down the money? I always have this line where I'm always like, take the money and run. Yeah, um, right. You know, like, <laughs> I think there are two things that I would prefer. I would prefer it um, if there was less or none, if the government got out of this and the foundations got out of this. Um, I'm just going to say that. Like, I actually don't think that... Um, I think that I think it'd be great for us to have to develop other forms of um, support for these institutions in some way without kind of negotiating those those forms. Um, or I think it would be really great if we had um, a robust um, kind of like more leftist funding that came out of like, um, you know, ultra left movements in some way um, that could counter this kind of like liberal drag on kind of cultural production that kind of comes out of the government in some form. And so, and that might just kind of make a, a more level playing field in this current moment. I'm always like, I don't, I don't really feel like it helps us to go around saying that because someone took the money, they're hopelessly appropriated. Uh, Cause I don't think that's true. I think the money is more systemic and we have to understand it as a system that we're involved in and kind of under maybe, maybe what we could do as artists is, is we have an obligation to understand how it works. Um, to try to begin to think through it. I mean, I don't, there's things that I don't do that I used to do just because I don't like it. I mean, like I, many, before I started this project, I, I applied, but never got an NEA. And I think I just kind of stopped applying for an NEA, but I still sometimes apply for other things. Um, and an and NEA, so I don't have any NEA is the national endowment for the, for arts. the arts. Okay. Great. Yeah. And they still fund writers. Um, but I mean, it, there's no purity in that. I mean, I always think of that old thing, that, the thing that they always say in like kind of like communist meetings where they're kind of like, um, you know, like if you if you try to be pure of like things like capitalism, or if you try to be pure of government funding, you're just uh, sitting starving in a corner shivering, right? You know, like there's no, um, that, that, that also is not necessarily helpful to kind of have to insist that people do these, you know, things. We all exist in this thing. I mean, what else can we do? Right. And so I'm, also wondering, do you think that there there would be like a different set of uh, protocols or uh, a different set of things to do for writers in English versus writers who are writing in uh, another language? Yeah, I mean that's a, that's an interesting um, question. I mean, I was in, I'm interested in that moment, um, like 
Pascal Casanova has this kind of really interesting analysis about how when writers want to stop, when they when when they want to show that they that they're not they don't want to be nationalist writers, that they often do things like um, they just don't write in standard English anymore, is the standard the language of the state anymore. Um, and so she she says that for like things like everything from like multilingual writing, which again we saw that repeatedly in these kind of culturalist movements, um, they repeatedly brought in kind of other languages, normally the language of like the cultural identity that they were supporting. Um, to kind of like avant-garde or, or dialects or just like anything that kind of like um, isn't in the kind of standard language. And I was, I've been, I'm very interested in that move. However, at the same time, it has been very easy for the United States to kind of like go back and bring that work in as part of their cultural diplomacy programs, um, which she acknowledges also as she just kind of sees it as, as it's the way that writers try to get out. Like she almost sees it as like a kind of constantly um, evolving moment. Like writers try to write their way out. The state tries to bring them back in. Um, so like who's, you know, who's the writer that um, most doesn't want to be a part of, of Irish writing? Someone like James Joyce, you know, who's writing Finnegan's Wake and a million different kind of international languages. And then who's the great Irish writer of today? James Joyce. Um, and so like the, these kind of constant gestures are part of how literature kind of fights or, you know, she kind of calls it like a war of position in some, mm -hmm. in some way. And it may be that we want to like look at those moments of resistance, even as we acknowledge that they can be put to state, but state use eventually, um, that we want to be attentive to them when they arrive um, for that brief period of time before they get kind of get recuperated. <laughs> This is Interchange on WFHB. Bella Bravo is in conversation with poet Juliana Spar, author of Du Bois's Telegram, Literary Resistance and State Containment, where Spar confronts the unknown knowns of cultural diplomacy in which the arts become nation-adjacent when they're funded by private foundations in partnership with state agencies. I think you have a quote from Césaire where he points out how... Uh, one of the uh, things that English does is it destroys um, the native language or it destroys the Ashanti language on the Gulf Coast um, and uh, destroys Arabic in uh, Algeria. And that has an immensely detrimental impact to the resistance movements um, in those places. So it seems impossible to say that we can just only write it, it it is like okay to limit yourself to like saying that writing in non-standard english or um writing in indigenous languages will be re recuperated or will be manipulated by the state and uh neglecting that as some sort of uh neglecting the potential of that again i keep thinking of like two things around that which is one is um a lot of a lot of things get a lot of claims get made around languages that often seem hopelessly romantic to me, which is claims about their necessarily their resistance potential and colonial situations. Um, so, like the languages that um, have not traveled, that have not been part of colonialism, um, often get presented as kind of like inherently resistant in a way that I think is, is not necessarily true. And on the other side, at the same time, we know that one of the moves that one of the moves of colonialism and of imperialism is to impose a language um, so as to break those the the traditions with the cultures that are that that other that are held in that other language and that's a very effective um, way of perpetuating colonialism like there's something about like the hit like 
like the history of that, that we have to just kind of like deal with or begin to think about in some form. Yeah, you have this um, quote from Casanova that says that language is not purely a literary tool, but an inescapably political instrument. And I appreciate that quote, because it's uh, not saying it's an instrument, it's presented almost as a neutral instrument, it could be for one side, or it could be for the other. Your book is a book of scholarship, um, but it also uh, feels deeply personal. Since this book is really a book about the politics uh, and how liter- of how literary works are made, you know, you talk about everything from aesthetics and language to publication. I guess what I'm wondering is if you could talk about how you came to this project and why you decided to write this book in this way. Yeah, I think I felt like... Um when I was working on it, because it was so focused on really contemporary literature that I had been involved in in some time, that I needed to at least admit my involvement, because otherwise, I would it would end up potentially looking like an indictment of things that I had been, you know, involved in in some way. And so I kept trying, I kept trying to have these moments where I would be like, look, here's how I got caught in the system. Um, with the hope that it wouldn't, it wouldn't feel like, um, Again, because I, I don't really feel like it's helpful to uh, kind of attack, you know, writers of literature for, the, for having having to exist in the system in some way. And so, like, I mean, I, I, you know, like one thing I did was I told that story about that moment when I when I go down to Tijuana, I'm invited to Tijuana um, to do a workshop, and um, I eventually end up realizing. And the idea is like I'm invited. Someone says to me like, "There's um, there's a fund for U.S. writers that we think we could get if if you were willing to come." down and it would be great if you'd be willing to donate the money back to this kind of community program that we're trying to do and so it felt like a really good cause or you know it was a feel-good moment for me i was like look at how good i am (laughs) (laughs) and um, i'm supporting this program um and then i get the check and i realize it's from the department of energy which pretty much means that it's some form of cultural diplomacy money that's some i don't even know why the department of energy is funding culture but they are and um and that moment also kind of somewhat interested me, but I think that's another moment where I was like, what is this? Like, what's going on um, that kind of, that had this happen? Or like, um, what am I over, why, what am I ever looking here? And that also sent me back to kind of like trying to kind of like understand um, so, something that was going, what, what, what was happening in some way. But so, I mean, I mean, I think that was kind of like part of it. It was just an attempt to kind of, um, I don't know. I, I, wouldn't, I don't even know. I was going to say something to be ethical to like to my own involvement in it or something like that, that I kept trying to kind of turn to the personal. But there's also there's a lot of things that felt like um, I wouldn't have access to if I hadn't been a participant in somewhat in many of these networks. Uh, beyond the ethical, was there uh, could you have could you have written this book um, by removing removing yourself or removing that personal history part from it? I couldn't have written it if I hadn't been um, trying to understand the scenes in which I was involved in, yeah. in some way. In some way, it's, there's something about literary scholarship that feels to me like we don't acknowledge how much of it is autobiographical, you know, how much of it's kind of a, a narrative of the self in some form, because we act like it has this kind of like distance from these questions or that it, ha- it ha- like that it answers to a kind of like... Uh, history of scholarship or something whereas i find that people tend to write very much within things that are within their personality or something some some form of that it's time for a break this is my reverie another from dizzy gillespie arranged by trombonist melba liston 
More with Juliana Spar on whether literature can keep the nation out of its production when Interchange returns on WFHB. back to Interchange on WFHB. Episode producer Bella Bravo is in conversation with poet Juliana Spar, author of Du Bois's Telegram, Literary Resistance and State Containment. In this segment, Spar explores the question of whether a revolution-aligned literature is possible. And then we close with a reading from Spar's poem, Transitory, Momentary. The book is thoroughly materialist. That you're you're very much so like looking at the conditions that you're uh, that you're working within, and it really feels like um, because I'm looking at your personal history, I understand why you're coming to the questions that you're coming to. Because um, at the end, um, the questions that we started with, uh, you phrase them as you you were developing uh, a workshop on, called Poetry and the Police. Um, and then the re- the subtitle for the uh, for the uh, workshop is just those questions. Is it oh. is a resistant and or revolution aligned literature possible? Could we create one? Would we want to? Um, and so we've talked about that a little bit, um, but I'm most curious about the because you mentioned that you're you want to uh, you you want to believe that a revolution aligned literature is possible. You want to believe in that potential. Um, uh, but I'm in cur- I'm curious about the question, like, could we uh, could we create one together, and would we even want to? Um, why Why do you end with a question? Would we even want to? I think in part because it feels slightly dangerous in in some form. Um, in part because it so it can be used to mollify revolution in some way or to co opt co opt it. That I think a, like if. I mean, these are never questions that anyone asks you, right? In the in the moment of revolution, no one says, "Like, do we want to have a literature component or not?" Um, but I think if I was if I was asked that, I think I would have a, I would I would have to think very hard about whether I would want that or not, or what you know what would be the dangers around it. You know, like I always feel like I write work that kind of like again is like adjacent, but not necessarily really. Um, involved in some of these issues but i don't know whether i might what i would do myself if i happened to find myself in a, in a kind of like revolutionary moment what i would end up i mean i my guess is that as a writer i probably couldn't keep that material out of it because i can never keep anything out of it whatever it is but yet at the same time um i you know like 
it would make me nervous, I think, to like, I mean, there are these moments where writers go in, especially in these mid-century moments where they're like, we're going to write the novel. We're going to write the, you know, what Benedict Anderson calls the imaginary community. Mm-hmm. We're going to write it into a, an existence. And I, I, that I'm not sure I would want to do. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, how your political engagements um, have shaped your writing. You said that nothing can really stay out. I keep trying to think about like, I mean, that's that other part of that moment where I kind of like have this in this book where I'm working on this book where I'm kind of like, oh, all the literatures that I know and love um, have been ones that have been very, very deeply involved in these State Department CIA networks in some way. Like, it's almost as if you cannot exist unless you were involved in those. And then when I keep going back to like the archive and, I would, and you would look up like, um, you know, who are these writers that I've never heard of? And it's like, oh, they're a Marxist or they're a communist. You know, like you would find out like yeah. there's a large amount of uh, kind of communist, Marxist, workerist, whatever you want to call it, um, ultra left writing that was happening um, from the 1930s forward. I mean, even before that, around 1919 had the same thing. And those writers just kind of get harassed out of existence um, in some Mm -hmm. form. And um, or we don't hold on to them because they, they didn't, you know, like they're we didn't, you know, we didn't preserve them in our syllabi or in our American anthologies in some form. And I keep trying to think about like, what are the legacies? What are the legacies of that writing? Both mm-hmm. like, um, what's in that writing? And what do we do with it? Um, and, um, you know, there's these periodic attempts to kind of pull it forward, like someone will do an anthology that kind of goes nowhere, <laughs> because the whole apparatus isn't set up to understand it or to, to care about it in some form. Right. So I mean, I don't, it's just, I don't really know what to say about it, except for the, there's a lot of literature that we've lost um, around those moments. In terms of like, like this kind of current moment, I don't really know. I mean, the way that we understand political literature is more around sort of, again, around these kind of culturalist movements. Um, and so like that, that's kind of where a lot of like the attention has kind of gone to. Like, I do think that there's a Black Lives Matter move, liter- literary movement, for instance, mm-hmm. um, that's been interestingly like, popped up and kind of and resistance and was a lot distributed through things like Facebook and, you know, various moments of kind of viral poems that kind of then got a huge amount of foundation and support um, the way that those kinds of things happen. And we're kind of, again, like we don't, I don't, I don't know yet if we can see the ramifications of that, like of, of what happened around, around that or, or what literatures did we lose um, um, that we should not have lost um, that we need to recover already mm-hmm. um, kind of in response to that. Like, I would blame my issues with my uh, literary marginalization, not on my politics and more on my (laughs) It would feel feel hubristic and a misunderstanding or something um, to say that it was mainly political. Oh, and I didn't I didn't mean to suggest that I was mostly. No, I didn't think you did. Oh, okay, good. Yeah. And so I, I guess like, as you continue to write, have there been any moments, I guess, especially over this past, these past couple of years, because it seems like the um, political climate is shifting um, pretty dramatically, and and social movements resonating uh, more and more across the across the globe. Has there have there been any moments over the past uh, year uh, or so that have found their way found its way into your work um, that have been motivating or driving your writing? For sure. Like I've been writing some about, um, you know, like the kind of I mean, Berkeley or the Bay Area had such a like weird moment around this kind of like fascism anti fall moment that I've been trying. I've been doing some writing out trying to understand that better. I keep thinking about like um, 
the, the thing that's been, actually been helpful for me to kind of think about current writing that I'm doing is I've been looking a lot at both Bracht and Muriel Rukeyser, who are both kind of have these kinds of like interesting works that they're writing, um, where they're recognizing the rise of fascism and they're trying mm-hmm. to understand it. And I've been interested in looking at that work and trying to think about like, are we in a similar moment or not? Mm-hmm. Um, do we, you know, like, what do we need to understand? And can they provide guidance? Like, was it, was it, did they point to some things that would point to like that we're not in this moment? Or do they mm-hmm. point to some things that, that you know, that, that are like almost like the warning sign that's flashing on and off in some sense? Um, which is a not yet answered question. <laughs> Wonderful. I'm so excited to see where that goes for you. As you continue to write and put work out into the world, uh, are there any, is there anything that you're starting to do differently after writing and learning lessons from Du Bois's telegram? Yeah. I mean, I think a lot more about how nation shows up in my work mm-hmm. and, um, have stopped trying to think of it as something accidental and something that needs to be more ex- like my, my relationship trying to make it more explicit in terms of like not wanting to be writing a national literature. Like I'm trying to address that more directly in some sense. So, I mean, so yeah, certainly. And has that felt possible for you to address it or to mitigate (laughs) the extent to which your writing becomes a part of a national literature? I guess probably not, because I'm not convinced you can ever avoid it. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was wondering. <laughs> but I, I do, I do I, I'm trying, like, I keep trying to just kind of, like, make it more explicit. Yeah, yeah, that might be all we can do, is just make it clear. I mean, Baraka, I feel like, did a really good job of, like, stay, like really being insistent on not being a part of it, just by being, like, really, having really extreme politics often, <laughs> and kind of, you know, being all over the place. And I mean, which is just not what I would do, finally. Mm-hmm. Um, although, you know, respect for the politics of his that I respect and disrespect for the politics <laughs> of his that I don't. Um, but I mean, he is such a large persona in some way. Like, I, I often think of him as the one successful writer who um, has managed to um, challenge the nation or challenge, you know, the incorporation. We'll close the program with Juliana Spar reading from the piece Transitory Momentary, which appears in her book That Winter the Wolf Cave, published by Commune Editions in 2015. The Brink geese fly in long, low, wavering lines on their migrations. They start in Western Europe, fatten in Iceland, and then fly over the Greenland ice cap to Canada. They sometimes breed on the Arctic coasts of central and western Siberia and winter in western Europe, some in England, the rest in Germany and France. What I have to offer here is nothing revolutionary. They learn the map from their parents or through culture rather than through genetics. It is just an observation, a small observation that sometimes art can hold the oil wars and all that they mean and might yet mean within. Just as sometimes there are seven stanzas in a song, and just as sometimes there is a refrain between each stanza, and just as often this sort of song tells a certain sort of story about having something and then losing it, just as sometimes the refrain of a song is just one word said four times, just as sometimes the word is huge, sometimes coming from a machine, and yet hitting in the heart, uplifting and ironic and big enough to hold all these things and its four syllables, just as sometimes, often even, it contradicts and thus works with the stanzas. Just as the police clear out yet another public space and yet another camera follows along behind. Just as the stream has no narration, only ambient noise. And the police move slowly, methodically in a line as if they are a many-legged machine. They know what they are doing. It is their third time clearing the park and they will clear it many more times and then they will win and a building will be built where there was once the park. 
And this song, as is true of many songs, it is unclear why the singer has lost something, maybe someone. And this time, the time of the oil wars, there are many reasons that singers give for being so lost. They are often lost because of love. Sometimes they are lost because of drugs. Sometimes they have lost their country, and in their heart, it feels as if they have lost something big. And then sometimes they are lost just because they are in Bakersfield. Really, though, they are lost because in this time, song holds loss, and this time is a time of loss. The police know as they move to the park yet one more time that they will win and a building will be built on the space, but right now, the building is not yet there. All that is there are the police and the debris, and the police deal with the debris. They push over bookshelves, open up boxes and look inside, tear into tents awkwardly, the poles springing. They are looking for humans. Tomorrow, the bulldozers will push the debris into big piles and load it into trucks. The police wear white helmets and short sleeves under their Kevlar vests. For many years, the Brent geese ate eelgrass, but once the eelgrass was gone to the wasting disease and the estuaries filled, they moved inland to agricultural lands and began eating grasses and winter-sown cereals. The Brent geese are social, adaptable. They fly around together, learning from each other, even as these groups are often unstable, changing from season to season. Songs in their most popular versions tend to be epiphanic, gorgeous with swelling chord changes, full of lament too. And this song, like many, expresses the desire to be near someone who is now lost. It travels with something layer, unfiltrated, unconfused, and its refusals to make a simple sense. Again, that was Juliana Spar reading from her poem, Transitory Momentary. The reading took place on September 19, 2013, as part of the St. Bonaventure Visiting Poets series and is available in full at Penn Sound, a project of the Center for Programs and Contemporary Writing at the University of Pennsylvania. Thanks to Juliana Spar for joining us on Interchange to discuss her book, Du Bois's Telegraph, Literary Resistance and State Containment, published by Harvard University Press. And that's our show. Our final song comes once again from Dizzy Gillespie, this time live at Newport from 1970. This is I'm Confessin', Gillespie's tribute to Louis Armstrong. And thank you for listening. I'm Doug Storm. I produce Interchange. Bella Bravo, a producer for the Interchange Collective, conducted the interview with Juliana Spar. Cade Young is our executive producer. The Jazz Menagerie is coming up next on Bloomington, Indiana's community radio station, WFHB. On our recent, it wasn't so recent, on our State Department tour, we, with the big band, we, we did some things, uh, sort of a history of jazz. And I had the pleasure of doing a tune that Louis Armstrong made famous, it's a tune called I'm Confessing. And when I got back from South America, I laid the tape on him. He went into hysterics. He rolled on the floor, honey. Here it is. I'm confessing that I love you. Tell me that you love me too. That I need you. That boom, 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 boom.
In your eyes, in your lips, in your legs, in your mmm. Blue. 